space tourism up there and down here. You're listening to Are We There Yet, the radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. A seat on Blue Origin's first crewed New Shepard flight went for $28 million at auction. The trip promises a launch to the edge of space with breathtaking views and moments of weightlessness, and Blue's founder, Jeff Bezos, will be there too. It marks the start of a new chapter of space tourism. Leaders in this industry touted the development of space tourism will open up space for all, but with a price tag that high, just who will get to go? Blue Origin isn't the only player. Virgin Galactic and SpaceX both have plans for space tourists. So what's the future of this burgeoning market? We'll speak with Laura Forsick, space policy analyst and founder of the consulting firm Astrolytical, about the future of space tourism up there. Then, if you can't afford to go to space or just want to stay firmly planted on the ground, there's still plenty to see. We'll talk with Julia Bergeron, the co-founder of the Space Coast Launch Ambassadors, about what the Space Coast has to offer for explorers that want to stay here on Earth. The future of space tourism, that's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. Blue Origin plans to take its first passengers on its New Shepard spacecraft next month. Founder Jeff Bezos and his brother Mark will be on the first mission with humans, and Blue Origin on Saturday auctioned another seat off to the highest bidder. Sold $28 million to number 107. That $28 million will go to Blue Origin's charity, Club for the Future. But the price shows the interest and the price some are willing to pay for space tourism. To talk more about this budding industry is Laura Forsick. She's a space policy and business analyst. Laura, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Blue Origin auctioned off the first commercial ticket for $28 million. Uh, First of all, Laura, did you expect it to go for this much? I did not. I'm sure other people had high estimates. That was surprising to me simply for the fact that that's around as much as the um, orbital International Space Station flights were going for just uh, 15, 20 years ago. And in fact, you can get a orbital ISS trip right now for about double that. So a suborbital trip for 11 minutes going for $28 million is quite a high price tag, but it is going to charity. Now, it is the first, right? I mean, that's the draw is this is the first seat along with, you know, a pretty VIP group going with you. But when it it comes to Blue Origin and and other space tourism companies out there, does does this price kind of raise the bar as to what they can charge for prices? And does this change the way that the space tourism market is going to operate in the future? I believe that was the plan all along. It was rather smart of Blue Origin to put this as a bid where they can see where the largest number of bids are coming from and what those prices, what those bids were. I don't think the price tag is going to raise to $28 million for every Blue Origin new Shepard flight. But I do believe that they'll take a number that they see popping up over and over and over again in their auction. And they'll raise that ticket price to that amount. And I think that Virgin Galactic, which had already planned to raise their ticket prices, will raise it. uh, Who knows how much they'll raise it, whether they raise it as much as Blue Origin's ticket price or keep it a little under. We'll just have to see. But it it goes to show how much the market is willing to pay for this kind of suborbital space flight, this adventure tourism. Mm -hmm. This adventure tourism that seems to only be for the extremely wealthy, right? You and I could not afford a $28 million ticket. I mean, do you think that 
this is kind of trending in the wrong direction. We've always been told that space tourism is going to make space for all. But when ticket prices are this high, and as you say, could continue to go up higher because of this increased demand, is that ever going to happen? Is this just going to be an experience for the wealthy? We've all expected that the initial prices will be very high because it's the early adapters who are the wealthy who can pay those kind of prices. And it's a very expensive development process. Um, that isn't to say that I don't hope that the prices go down sooner than later. But the idea is that once these flights become operational, and they are far from operational right now, even uh, the SpaceX orbital flights with Crew Dragon um, have had some successes, but haven't had their first commercial flight yet that's coming later this year. Um, it's not yet, it's, it's, it's never, not going to be routine for quite a number of centuries, but it's not yet even to the point where it's regularly done. And so when these flights happen in a more regular cadence, more regular pace, then we could possibly expect the prices to start coming down and start becoming more accessible for people like you and me. And we have to keep in mind, though, the early adapters have actually been funding people who are not wealthy. So that SpaceX flight I just mentioned, that's one wealthy person who bought a flight and is taking up three additional people who are not wealthy. That's the Inspiration4 mission. This Blue Origin flight that we just talked about, Jeff Bezos is bringing his brother, Mark, and they're also bringing one additional uh, not-yet-released person up on that flight. And so we're just going to have to see who is going to be um, the lucky ones chosen who are not wealthy, who get brought along on these space flights. Mm -hmm. Is it you? Not me. Not yet. (laughs) I'm waiting for someone to give me a call. What's the next step for Blue Origin after this? I mean, will we see the decrease in prices? Um, Is the demand going to be there? I mean, what do you expect to see in the future for Blue Origin? Well, Blue Origin is notoriously secret. They they do not announce their plans ahead of time very often. But what we should expect is that they do have plans to open up tickets to the broader public. Um, and what price they set, we don't know. I don't think they'll do another auction. I think that was just for the first one to be special. Um, and they'll open it up in a lot of the same ways that we've seen Virgin Galactic and even other companies such as SpaceX and Space Adventures open up their ticket prices to anybody who's wealthy enough and ready to climb on board New Shepard. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a bit about SpaceX and its upcoming um, tourism mission, Inspiration4. You mentioned that this was one wealthy person um, purchasing this mission and then bringing other folks in for charity and outreach and some science. Um, how is this different from the Blue Origin mission? This is a much longer mission, so they're going to be up there for a few days. It's going in a free trajectory orbit around the Earth, so it's not going to the International Space Station, but it will be up there for a few days up on Crew Dragon. And in fact, they're they're installing a special window up there to make it really special and beautiful view. Um, And they're going to be doing outreach activities. They're going to be doing science. And it's going to be... only people who have never flown on a space mission before. So whether you call them a new astronauts or whether you call them space flight participants or whether you just call them tourists, I don't think the tourist uh, name really fits here. But these are people who are not professional astronauts who have been chosen by NASA, none of them. Um, the the um, head of this mission, Jared Isaacman, he is a, a pilot. So he has, in fact, flown on lots of different types of experimental and um, high-performance aircraft. But he has never flown in space before, and none of his other crew members have. So that's what makes this one so special. I mean, this this mission, for me, it, it kind of came out of nowhere because, you know, SpaceX had touted this, um, this, this private mission to the International Space Station uh, coming up. But th- this one was kind of a surprise to me. 
were these kind of orbital flights not going to a destination always part of the SpaceX plan? Or, I mean, did, was this was this expected? It's not unexpected. SpaceX had not announced plans like this, but other companies such as Space Adventures, they had done trips to uh, the International Space Station in the past, and they had also announced trips, a partnership, in fact, with SpaceX to do a free trajectory flight like that. But SpaceX has instead done it themselves and not partnered with another company and arranged this mission by themselves. So it's not unexpected. In fact, we might see this more and more because the International Space Station is getting a bit crowded. NASA has said that they only have room for two private astronaut missions a year. Russia has their own plans for private astronaut missions, including a movie that they're bringing up an actress and a, a film director up there. And so there's lots of activity going on on Space Station in addition to the professional astronauts who fly. And so we, we might see more and more of these trips that are around Earth but don't actually go to a space station. And hopefully in the future, we'll see private space stations come on board as well. Mm -hmm. And and NASA kind of opened up the space station to um, this kind of commercial space industry pretty recently, right? I mean, um, that's a big part of why there is this market now is that NASA, along with the Russian space agency, said, hey, you know, guests are welcome, albeit just a few a year. But um, I mean, is that kind of the driving force of this? That's exactly right. In fact, NASA was not on board for many years back with the first mission to the International Space Station by a private customer that was Dennis Tito. He flew um, in 2001 with the Russians and Space Adventures, and NASA was very much against that mission. They almost stopped it. Um, however, they, they uh, you know eventually allowed him to come on board um, along with six other private astronauts um, who flew through Space Adventures. Um, but it wasn't until 2019 that NASA finally decided that they were going to open up International Space Station to uh, much more of a commercial base. That's both private astronauts and also commercial customers who want to fly their their payloads, such as Estee Lauder, which flew um, some of their products to film for a promotional series. So NASA is becoming more and more interested in commercializing the International Space Station to release some of the funds that NASA spends on International Space Station so NASA can focus on other more expensive missions. That was going to be my next question, Laura, is, you know, the future of the International Space Station, especially, you know, after two decades of existence, is always uncertain. Um, does, does having these commercial opportunities kind of extend the life of it a bit? Yeah, the International Space Station was never built to be um, funded commercially. It is very expensive. It wasn't meant to be cost efficient. And so what we're seeing now is NASA trying to both get extra funds from commercializing it, from bringing on board these opportunities to fly commercial payloads and commercial passengers, while also um, trying to extend the life of the International Space Station with um, you know, the, the idea that we need to prepare our astronauts on board space station to fly beyond. So whether that's longer trips to um, you know the Mars or whether that's trips to the Lunar Gateway, um, any way that NASA can prepare its astronauts and prepare its future missions, it uses space station very well to prepare its technology and its people to fly on longer missions. And so I think we'll see NASA continue to try to convince Congress to fund it through at least 2030. But right now the future is uncertain, especially since Russia is saying that they want 
want to uh, drop the partnerships or, or they are threatening to drop it if certain sanctions are dropped against the Russian uh, Roscosmos head. And so we're just going to have to see how the politics plays out there, both geopolitical politics between Russia and the United States, as well as internal politics between you know, Congress and the White House and um, you know, whoever else has an idea of when space stations should be deorbited or what its final life should look like. Mm-hmm. And, and let's talk about um, these private companies and, and speaking of funding. Uh, with Blue Origin, space tourism is just one aspect of its business model, right? It's building an, an orbital uh, rocket, New Glenn, that'll be used to put payloads in space for the private industry, for, for um, the military. SpaceX obviously has contracts with NASA, um, but these tourism efforts will help its bigger efforts to go to places like Mars. Um, and I want to ask you just how important is tourism to these private companies? I mean, how much of their exploration efforts rely on the cash they make from from these tourist missions? Tourism is a, is a large part of their market. And so what we're seeing is a diversity of the clientele. And some of it is going to be um, government, whether that is NASA or the Department of Defense. And some of that is going to be international governments. So, um, for example, Israel wants to fly uh, people with, with Virgin Galactic on one of their first flights. And so we're seeing a diversification of people who want to fly, not just the United States, um, but lots of different types of countries that want to fly their own people. Also, the, the tourism kind of brings in the aspect of any one of us can fly in space if we get the proper permissions from the doctors that they decide that need to get from whatever physicians are required. Um, if they get permissions to fly, then then you and me and anybody else who has the funds or is you know connected enough to get chosen can fly. And then there's the research aspect. We have now two announced Virgin Galactic research missions, one by NASA to fly Alan Stern and one by a private institute to fly Kelly Girardi. And we're going to see more and more of those research missions where um, instead of just having automated payloads to do your science, you can fly with your science and get even more done. And, and so we're going to see a diversification there. And what uh, target, what what market ends up being the largest amount for these companies, I don't know. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what they hone in on and which company decides they want to hone in on what to, to specialize on something or something else um, to make them different from, you know, what what is Blue Origin going to do that's different from Virgin Galactic in terms of their targeting customers and how they make mon- money? And, and we're just going to have to see how it plays out. It's really early still. You mentioned people like you and me taking part in these efforts. Um, if If money was no option, what would your ideal cosmic getaway be for you, Laura? Where are you going as a space tourist if money is no option? I've always been a moon girl ever since I was a kid. And so for me, it is living out this short story I wrote in third grade, taking, you know, really cool, interesting things to the moon and walking around. My background is in planetary science. So hey, somebody, whether it's NASA or somebody else, sign me up to go to the moon. That was Laura Forsick, a space policy and business analyst and founder of the consulting firm Astrolytical. Still to come, space tourism isn't just for the rich or for those who want to leave the planet. What to see while you're firmly planted to the ground? That's ahead when Are We There Yet continues here on WMFE, America's Space Station. 
You're listening to Are We There Yet here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. We talked about the growing space industry up there, but what if you want to stay firmly planted on the ground? Florida's space coast has been attracting tourists of the terrestrial kind for decades, and as more and more commercial and scientific launches take flight from Brevard County, there's more opportunity than ever to see spaceflight up close. Julia Bergeron is the co-founder of Space Coast Launch Ambassadors, which aims to help space fans enjoy all the Space Coast has to offer. She joins us now to talk about all you can see from right here on the ground. Julia, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you are a co-founder of the Space Coast Launch Ambassador. Tell me a little bit about this program and, and what the aim is. So we're working on becoming a nonprofit, and what our goal is is to help visitors to the Space Coast have their best experience when they come visit, usually to enjoy a launch or to have a great spacey experience. And, and tell me a bit about um, what is it like out there? Just describe it. What's it like? can tell you that launch day can be very hot sometimes in Florida. (laughs) Um, And sometimes it can be very crowded, right? It depends on the type of launch and the time of day, but it is definitely a shared experience. I find that you meet a lot of local people and sometimes you're standing next to somebody who perhaps even worked on the Apollo program. So as a local, we get a great experience. The other side of that is we get to meet people from all over the world. And we see people travel from Europe, from Australia. Um, I've even seen people from Japan. So that shared experience and learning other cultures and how they view spaceflight is very exciting. It seems that we are entering a new era of launches. You know, back in the day, there was the space shuttle that that brought lots of crowds out to the Space Coast. Uh, but that after it was retired in 2011, we, we saw a downtick in the activity out there. Uh, but now with more commercial companies like SpaceX, especially, um, and other companies like United Launch Alliance and, and soon, you know, Blue Origin and others, it's ramping up. Uh, what are you seeing as launches happen more frequently on the coast? I'm seeing that they are just as popular as ever, especially the crewed launches. My understanding is those are bringing just as many crowds as the shuttle era did uh, during STS-135 at the end of the program. And it really doesn't even matter the time of day. Even at night on US-1 on Highway 528, you still see a healthy crowd showing up for these launches and really experiencing this next era of space flight history with commercial programs. And a lot of those flights, I'm thinking DM2, which was SpaceX's first launch of Bob and Doug. Um, there was Crew 1 and Crew 2. Those missions happened during the pandemic where crowds were limited. A, a lot of people may have had some apprehension going out to a public space. Um, what was it like at, at the start of, of the pandemic and how has that changed? And, and do you expect now that, you know, the state is open and, and most folks are vaccinated, uh, do we expect huge crowds for these going forward? You know, wow. Demo Mission 2 was right at the beginning of that. And we really didn't know what to expect because on one hand, you you had the space community saying, no, don't travel. There'll be a lot of opportunities to see it online. Many places are broadcasting it, including NASA, to make it an experience that you can share at home. Um, 
don't travel. And then we had local officials saying, yes, our tourism industry really needs this. Please come see the launch. In the end, nobody knew what to expect. And I can tell you, Demo Mission 2 was quite a crowd in Titusville. And that's where I was watching from. The Max Brewer Bridge was full. Uh, the coastline was full. The traffic was long waits to get out uh, once the launch was over. I can say during crew one and crew two, maybe a little bit of that excitement had passed because we we had our first crewed mission. Mm -hmm. But it's still really busy. So I would say now that people are starting to be able to travel and we're starting to see definitely more international travel as somebody who works a day job on Merritt Island, I can tell you that the tourists are definitely coming back to the beaches. Mm -hmm. And once we get our cruise ships going again, I think that we'll be back to very healthy shuttle era crowds um, every launch mm -hmm. as far as a crude mission goes. And when you factor in something like a rare Falcon Heavy or a rare return to launch site for SpaceX, those always draw crowds that sell out charter boats on the ocean even. The, when you talk about there's the excitement for the crude launches. Those are kind of intentional trips to come down here, right? You you come down here specifically to see that. You, you visit the coast to specifically watch that. But is is the draw now that, hey, if you come to the Space Coast, you're probably going to see a launch, albeit it might not be a crude launch, but you'll probably see SpaceX sending something up, ULA sending something out. Is it kind of like an added bonus now when you come to visit Brevard County that you're going to see a launch? Exactly. You're going to see something. With the launch cadence having increased with the Starlink launches, even if the weather doesn't cooperate and the crewed mission doesn't happen, usually they'll still try and fit in a Starlink mission. And if you don't somehow manage to see a launch, there's a good chance that you will see a return to port of one of the boosters that just had landed out in the ocean and was coming back to be processed again. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't see any of that, we still have plenty of spacey things to do here. So your visit isn't lost. You just may not have seen exactly what you were hoping to see. Tell me a bit about those boosters returning to port, Julia, because you have the reputation of being the one who tracks these and chases these down when they come into port. What What is the experience like seeing some 20 story tall booster on this futuristic looking barge come <laughs> come <laughs> well and and the unique thing is that even the barges have starlink satellites on them now and so do many of the ships so you're you're seeing a little bit of what's going up um becoming real life and i can tell you that a booster returning to the port has not gotten old. I've done, I think on my last count, about 45 selfies with boosters that have returned. <laughs> and I have counted one of them. I have seen all 10 returns, which is pretty impressive considering I didn't start doing it really until 2020, mm -hmm. um, every return. So if you're uh, thinking from the public side, this is the closest you can get really to a booster that is in an an operational status mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't get old so it's a it's a pretty spectacular thing and i highly recommend if you're here on a visit that you come down to either port canaveral or jetty park and and really have that experience to truly understand reuse and what that looks like mm -hmm. you mentioned launches and, and watching launches as a shared experience um if someone's coming down for their first launch how do you recommend they 
actually watch one of these things? Where, where do you go? Oh, wow. The choices are somewhat endless. You can do a paid experience at the Kennedy Space Center Visitors Center. Uh, they offer with your admission that you can watch from, say, the Rocket Garden. So you won't have a direct view of the pad, but you will see it once it leaves the tree line. So that is one way to experience it. You can, it depends what your experience, what you really want. You can um, even take a charter boat out. So a lot of our fishing charters are more than happy to take you out for a launch mm -hmm. and experience it on the water. Uh, the Atlantic Ocean, it's a spectacular view from there. And there's many free ways to watch, such as uh, along US-1 in Titusville, there is always a great view of, of pretty much every active launch pad right now. And many of those parks are open 24 hours, so easy access. There's always the Max Brewer Bridge as well. And if you go to the south, there's always the beaches. There's always Highway 528, which I tell people, maybe your first experience, that's not the best place mm -hmm. because you got to be really brave to get back on the highway from <laughs> the local fishing spot. But there's lots of free places and you can always feel free to message somebody in the space community in media or myself on Twitter and I will be happy to point you in the right direction for that launch. I, I grew up in Florida my entire life. I have this great job where I get to see this this stuff constantly um, but I have never seen a launch from a boat. Uh, have you? What is that experience like? That's a fun experience. I have um, some friends who were basically a Reddit group, and they wanted to have a shared experience together and always wondered what would it be like to see a landing at LZ1 from a boat? How spectacular would that be? Well, they discovered it was very spectacular, and as a group of friends, they started an organization called Starfleet Tours, and they began to engage with the local captains. And when they have opportunities, they will offer tours for launches. And it's usually crewed launches, mm -hmm. uh, Falcon Heavies, things along that line, or sometimes even like a Delta Heavy. And they work directly with the Coast Guard and the 45th Space Wing to make sure that you are not the wayward goat that scrubs the launch. Stopping the, stopping the launch, yes. <laughs> yeah, so very important. If you are somebody who likes to take a kayak out, there are places you can do that, such as from the Wildlife Preserve to the north. Uh, but you need to be very aware of going out independently and where those hazard zones are. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you'll get a visit from a 45th uh, Space Wing helicopter who's going to give you quite the rotor wash and shoo you off. You don't want that. <laughs> no, not a good experience, no. <laughs> so, Julia, earlier in the show, we talked a bit about the space tourism opportunities, which... Um, are going to be quite expensive. Um, but you've talked about a lot of the things that you can do here on the ground um, that I would argue are, are almost as fun as going to space. Um, but if if you had the chance to become one of those space tourists and and fly into orbit or, or go to the International Space Station, would you do that? And, and where would your ideal destination be? I would say I'm willing to go as far as the moon. Okay. <laughs> That's a pretty safe bet, The moon bet, right? is about, yeah, I feel like we've got enough experience there that there's plenty to see and, and experience. And if something should happen, I could still get home. Mm -hmm. And it'd be pretty impressive to see a launch 
from the moon, huh? <laughs> that would be very impressive. And me and my camera would just be happy to just get views of the earth. Exactly. <laughs> well, we've been speaking with Julia Bergeron. She is the co-founder of Space Coast Launch Ambassadors. Julia, thank you so much for speaking with us. It has been my pleasure. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. You can do that on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Are We There Yet? a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our intern is Randy Vuxta. He also produced this episode. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>